This morning, as we're going to be diving into this passage, continuing our study in 1 Samuel, it's interesting that our culture has a desire to make God one-dimensional. And that one dimension of God is often the dimension or overemphasis of love. That we overemphasize his attribute of love. And so this overemphasis actually isn't just relegated to our culture. When you ask somebody about what God is, we hear people constantly say, God is love. Well, God is love. But he's more than just love. Scripture tells us that God is wrath, that God is holy, that God is just, that he is righteous, that he's merciful, that God is present, all present, that he's all-knowing, and that God is sovereign. Those are just the things to begin with about God. And so our overemphasis on this love within our culture is actually even infiltrated within the church. And when there's an overemphasis on the one attribute of God, this attribute of love, we really fail to acknowledge who God really is, a God of holiness. A God who is more than simply love, but who is present. A God who deals with sin through his wrath. A God who is merciful through the work of the cross. And this idea of wrath is a, an idea that we do not like often attributing to God. But when we begin to diminish God's wrath, the idea of a loving God sending someone to an eternity apart from him in hell becomes diminished. And the truth is, is that we're actually seeing churches that were holding sound doctrine, Christian leaders that were holding to sound doctrine, slowly fade away of their belief of hell. That God will just redeem all mankind in the end. And there is no place for this torment or this, this separation from God. And so slowly but surely, we're seeing this move. I mean, Christian leaders that have moved away from their position on hell. I was having a conversation with a, another friend who was talking about seminary friends that had rejected the truth of hell. You see, the truth is that the wrath of God toward our guiltiness as sinners must be appeased. And however, in the face of a holy God, we truly have nothing to offer him. We have nothing to offer him. And so, the only way to appease a holy God is with a perfect sacrifice. And so this morning, as we dive into 1 Samuel 6... We're going to see a nation attempt to appease God. But what it's going to show us is the contrast between man's attempt to appease God and God's appeasement of his own wrath 
through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to be reading 1 Samuel chapter 6. We'll be going through the entire chapters, 21 verses. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. If you don't, it's okay to follow along with the screens. We also have Bibles in the backs. And this is what it says. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him with a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box of the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors the Philistines returned as guilt offerings to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beshemesh. And he struck down some of the men of Beshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirith Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Lord, as we 
read your word, as we are challenged in your word this morning. Father, may you grant clarity to us. Lord, may you steady our hearts before you. May it be your spirit that speaks to us, and may you bind any work of the enemy that seeks to bring confusion or disruption this morning in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we trust you. We trust your movement, your leading. We trust your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to each of us and then corporately to us as the body of Christ. That your word would penetrate to those areas, God, where you're working and where you're moving and sifting, where you're purifying. Father, we thank you that we can come and worship you this morning. And may your word, may your word cut through the things of our heart that you desire to deal with. And God, may we rejoice over the truth that we can stand in your presence because of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Speak to us this morning. Give us open eyes that see your truth and open ears that hear your truth. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God's holiness requires a just response to all sin and reveals our need for redemption through the sacrificial work of Christ. God's holiness requires a just response to all sin and reveals our need for redemption through the sacrificial work of Christ. God's holiness. That holiness requires redemption that can only come through Christ. As we look this morning at the the story of the Philistines returning the ark what we're going to see is man's attempt at satisfying the wrath of God for his sin. What we're going to see is that there is no one who can stand in God's presence, in his holy presence, apart from Christ. See, the Philistines have been experiencing tremendous bodily affliction. And verse 1 tells us that the ark was in the land for seven months. The, the ark was bringing this, the ark of God, his, his presence, his glory. And if you recall from last week, the Philistines set the ark of God against Dagon next to Dagon, their idol, their God. And their God kept falling in submission to the point that the last time it fell, its its head and arms broke off. And so rather than dealing with the truth of who God was, they began passing the ark around. They just wanted to get God away from them. They wanted to get away. Because God was bringing affliction. He was judging them through this bodily affliction and through the growth of tumors. 
Now we think of tumors today kind of in cancerous tumors, but the language here actually means hemorrhoid. The idea here is that they were at the core, their entire, their, 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 their bodies were infiltrated by these, these tissue breaks, so to speak. It was painful. It was tormenting. They couldn't be at peace because they couldn't sit, they couldn't stand. Whatever they did was painful. But the truth is is that God's not going to be mocked. And wherever the ark was being housed, the people in the city experienced his judgment. And 1 Samuel 5.11 says that they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. So they saw the power of God and yet the only thing they wanted to do was get away from it. Well, that was taking place for seven months. For seven months, they experienced the power of God at work. And the only thing that they saw was the judgment of God upon them. We can look at that and say that sounds kind of foolish, but I wonder how many times in our own lives where we see God at work and we still want to push him away and keep him at arm's distance. Where we recognize that God is trying to grab our attention and we're still saying, "Uh, I, I don't know. The Philistines, all they had to do was turn towards God, and yet what they did was rather than turn towards God, they sent God away. Well, verse 2 tells us, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. The priest and the diviner said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means... Return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. The Philistines knew that the God of Israel was real. The Philistines understood that this was a true God. And yet, they continue to drive him away, to send him away. And their only response is, what do we need to do and where do we need to send him? Well, the priests and diviners of the Philistines knew that the only way that anything might change is if they offered up and acknowledged their own guilt before God. They believed that they had offended this God in some way, and so they were going to offer up a guilt offering. Well, what we see here and begin to see in this passage are really three aspects of God's redemption, which allows us to stand confidently in his presence. You see, the Philistines have no confidence here. They don't know what to do. They don't even know how to stand in God's presence. They just want to get away from him. Later in the passage, the Israelites are going to experience a similar thing. 
The people of Beth Shemesh are going to say, how do you stand in the presence of this holy God? So the first aspect of God's redemption, which allows us to stand confidently, is that a guilt offering is given to appease God's wrath. Now the Philistines attempt this. They attempt it by going and asking the question of what should be done. And notice what it says here. It says that their answer says, and they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered five golden tumors and five golden mice. Now that sounds odd, doesn't it? I I want you to make an image of your hemorrhoid (laughs) and I want you to make an image of a mouse and then I want you to fashion it from gold and I want you to place it in a little box and send it back with that God, right? It's crazy. And yet, the truth is, sacrifices that were made of gold being sent back, one for each of the lords of the Philistines. Five. And it says here that the reason that they chose to send this as an offering was because it says here that it was the same plague was on all of you and your lords. They were suffering from the same ailment and therefore the offering should be the same. They knew enough. They knew that something had to deal or had to be done to deal with their guilt. You see, they had offended God and they were guilty before God. Legally, they were found to have done the crime. So, A guilt offering is given to appease God's wrath. In in the Old Testament, a guilt offering was given for three reasons. Leviticus 5.15 speaks of the fact of unintentional sin against God. Guilt offering was given because we may not know that we sin against God, and therefore we need to appease our guiltiness, appease the wrath as a result of our guiltiness. Leviticus 5.17 tells us, that another reason for a guilt offering was intentional sin against God. And then Leviticus 6, 2 through 3 says that a sin against a person. And so in this guilt offering, what was brought was a male ram, and it was brought and slaughtered and sacrificed because of an offense against God or an offense to God, or offense to man. And the only way to experience that forgiveness, according to the law, was to bring a ram and sacrifice that ram. When Jonathan Edwards spoke of our sin, he said this, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. It's a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. 
You hang by a slender thread with flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you've ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. That's the wrath. That's the rightful punishment for sin. And yet, there's a guilt offering that's been given. And so man's attempt was the best that he had to offer with his hands. Well, in the moment, God seems to relent. But we're going to see that God actually doesn't relent with the work of man's hands. In contrast to that, is actually God's guilt offering. In contrast to that, in Isaiah 53, five through six, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. The Philistines knew that if they could appease God's wrath, they could be healed, but they had no way to appease God's wrath. So God provides a way. God provides a way with his son, Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 53 continues, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. As a result of God's holiness, God's the one that puts forth our guilt offering. He's the one that says, listen, I have the perfect offering, not you. Whatever we have is gonna be insufficient. Whatever we have is a golden mouse and a golden hemorrhoid. It means nothing. I wonder if that's what God sees when we try to make ourselves right in his eyes apart from him. Does he see just a mouse, a decorated pretty little rat, and a solidified hemorrhoid? That's what we have to offer God. Apart from Jesus, what we have to offer God is that which God says is defiled. See, it's the work of Jesus. And it's the fact that God is the one who puts forth the guilt offering for us. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation deals with the turning away of wrath via an offering and it renders a person favorable. Here's what he's saying. That guilt offering that the Philistines offer, oh, oh, it did something temporarily. But it didn't do anything permanently. The only offering that is offered that will permanently appease God's wrath is the offering of Jesus Christ. 
the offering which has been given on our behalf. And it's because of God's holiness that God knew that nothing would be acceptable except for his perfect and holy sacrifice. It had to be an unblemished lamb, one without sin, one without stain. And it would be his blood that was imputed to us so that we might stand in the presence of a holy God. This guilt offering, this guilt offering that God brought forth for our sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 puts it this way. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Wow. I wonder how we feel about God's holiness and wrath now. Because the reason we have Jesus is because of God's holiness and wrath. It's precisely because God's response is wrathful towards sin that we get to experience the freedom of Jesus Christ because in his love, he provides a way out. That's awesome. See, when we look at Christ, when we look at God and his character, when we deny certain aspects of God, we actually deny his glory. We're given the ability to see the fullness of his beauty when we understand the totality of his attributes. And it's in his holiness that we get the freedom to experience the full blessing of Jesus. See, apart from God's holiness and wrath, we don't need Jesus. But because of his holiness and wrath, we get a chance to experience what it's like to having living God living within us. The second aspect of God's redemption is that the truth of God's judgment is confirmed through the supernatural work. The truth of God's judgment is confirmed through supernatural work. Now the Philistines, after seeing everything and experiencing everything, it says here in verse 7, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. That's important because a mother cow wants to stay with its calves. And so he's saying, listen, if those calves go straight where I'm asking or where I think they'll go, you can know it's of God. And notice what he says here. He says, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It just happened by coincidence. Now after all of this, there's still a bit of them inside of them going... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's God doing this to us or not. 
So let's test it. And so they take these cows, they take away the calves, they, they basically say, listen, on any chance, we're going to try to give it every reason to go back to its land and make it so that it actually isn't God. See, they actually move in a place of wanting to be deceived. They don't like what's to come if God is actually real. What happens is the, the cows head straight. In fact, the scripture tells us in verse 11 and 12 that it doesn't veer left or right, it goes straight. The heads are bowed, are lowed, and they continue to move forward until they get to Beth Shemesh. God supernaturally reveals to them that his judgment is upon them. In our own lives, there are times that we can wrestle with the truth of God's judgment. And yet, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can be assured that his judgment is real. See, there's no need for Jesus to go to the cross apart from God's judgment. Romans 5, 6 through 11, and I want to encourage you to write that passage down. Romans 5, 6 through 11. This is what it says. It says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, in God's holiness, his truth, the truth of his judgment is consumed or confirmed by the supernatural work. The supernatural work of the cross of Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus. If I believe in Jesus, if I believe that Jesus went to the cross, died and rose again, and that through him I have salvation, I can no longer question the judgment of God. I, I can no longer question the wrath of God. My belief in Christ is hinged upon that wrath. My belief that says that Jesus died for me, taking my sin, acknowledges that apart from Christ, that wrath would lead to my destruction, to an eternity apart from him. And so to believe in Jesus is to also acknowledge the existence of God's wrath. It's important. Because we do stand in a culture that loves to pick and choose. 
I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in the bad stuff. I believe in Jesus, but he would never, ever allow that to happen to somebody. I believe in Jesus. I believe he gives, but he certainly doesn't take away. I believe that if Jesus and therefore God would never allow something bad to happen to me. God would never allow something to harm me. The truth is, is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is far greater than a cow going straight down the path, is confirmed or is confirming of God's judgment. You see, the Philistines, they were looking for reasons not to believe. And I think there's times that we look for reasons not to believe. When God begins revealing sin in our life, and that's going to be costly to us, and it's going to be uncomfortable to us to begin to hand it to him. We look for reasons not to believe that God's wrath is really going to be what it is. We look for reasons to diminish the purpose of his wrath. You see, God disciplines those that he loves. And if we're in unrepentant sin and we're able to continue in that unrepentant sin without his discipline in our life, we have to honestly ask, do we really know him and does he really know us? truth of God's judgment is confirmed through supernatural work, through the work of the cross. Christ dying for our rightful punishment, our rightful penalty, but then rising again so that now our sin is put to death and we are given life in him. See, if there is no resurrection, the sacrifice that's offered is really just a, another form of sacrifice that goes on the way that the sacrifice of a lamb would have gone on. But through his resurrection, it now becomes, it is finished, it is a completed work, it is one time, and Christ's life is imputed to us, is given to us. And so now, as Roman tells us, in the same way that we shared in the death of Christ, we now share in the resurrection of Christ. Once and for all, new life with him. That's a pretty awesome thing. And so the supernatural work of the cross should point us and remind us that God's judgment is real. The third aspect here then is this. In verse 13, it says that this ark was brought. And while the ark was brought into the town, it says the people rejoiced. They took the ark off of the 
cart and they placed it on the side and they took the box of idols and they placed those or the box of offerings and placed those on the side. They slaughtered the cows, took the word from the ark and then sacrificed the cows. It says that the Levites then began the process of preparing sacrifices throughout the day. The band of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And it says when the Philistine lords saw this, they turned around and they went back home. Believing momentarily that their affliction would be gone. And knowing that it truly was God's hand that was heavy against them. This should be a warning to us. If you've seen the power of God at work, and your response to the power of God is to turn and simply go back the other way, believing that you have temporarily eliminated his wrath, know that his eternal wrath is far more severe. And that his call for you is to turn towards him, not away from him. And to submit and surrender to him. To repent and believe on him for your salvation. It's interesting that earlier in this chapter, the Philistines were reminded of the Egyptians and Pharaoh who had hardened their hearts against God. And it says, why not offer the sacrifice? Because here's what's going to happen to you. We saw it with the Egyptians and Pharaoh. They fought God, and then they still paid the price for fighting God. These Philistines, they appeased his wrath in the moment. But they went back to the same place in the same way with the same eternal condition that resided in them. A condition that was rebellion and rebellious to God. And so, as these people from Beth Shemesh are continuing to sacrifice the Lord, we see that these offerings are offered up. And it says then in verse 19, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. See, God's redemption demands a righteous priest to minister on our behalf. Demands a righteous priest to minister on our behalf. This word here is they looked upon the ark of the Lord. It actually refers to they looked upon it in a casual way. They dealt with it with apathy, meaning this. They understood the law, yet they didn't care. That's what it means. These men knew that they, they weren't to go and handle the ark. The only one that was to handle the ark and minister the ark was the priest that was before them. And yet, they deal with the, the holiness of God in a very cavalier way. In a way that's casual, that's, that's unreverent or irreverent. And it says that because they dealt with the ark in this irreverent manner, because they went up and they dealt with the ark, they looked into the ark, they opened up, they treated it as if it was some sort of uh, tourist ploy. 
something to be merely observed and looked at because of the irreverence that was shown by looking into the ark. It says that God struck them down. That their security in Christ or their security in, in relationship with the God was not based on the fact that they were part of the Israelites, but it was based on their obedience and submission to the Lord. Now notice what their response is. They cry out and they say this. They say simply, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So immediately they cry out and say, who should stand before it? They don't even think about the fact that they have been irreverent with the ark of God. What do the Israelites want to do? They want to do the same thing the Philistines did. The people of Beth Shemesh, they're like, yeah, get the God out of here. Get this ark out of here. Why? Because they're still operating in their sin. See, outwardly they rejoiced at God's presence. In fact, outwardly they worshipped, but in their worship there was an irreverence towards the ark. In, in fact, even in their worship, what they were offering were female cows when they should have been offering male rams. There are times where I think we can rejoice over the fact that God is who he claimed he is. And yet, we can do things that are irreverent towards him. And the point is this, that there is not one of us who can provide an offering which is sufficient to appease God's wrath. The only one who is able to provide that is God through Jesus. And it is in Jesus that each one of us have the ability to experience genuine freedom in Christ, freedom from God's wrath because of what Christ has done. These Israelites needed to be coming in a reverent manner before the Lord and they experienced the judgment of God because of their irreverence. And the truth is, is God knows that because of his holiness, there is none of us that can come in a reverent way before him apart from Christ. In fact, Hebrews 7 tells us this. Hebrews 7 says this about Jesus. It says, consequently, he's able to save to the upper uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's the priest that we serve. Hebrews 9 adds this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats, calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
Verse 24 continues, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is the one that goes before us. He is the one that is ministering. He's ministering on our behalf before the Lord. The truth is, is that the only way that we can walk in righteousness is with Jesus. The only way that we can walk in reverence with God is with Jesus. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. And I want to encourage you to write that passage down. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's Jesus that allows us to come into the presence of God. And it's Jesus that allows for us to be able to deal in righteous way with God. Listen, God's holiness demands reverence. God's holiness demands righteousness. And the truth is, we can't live in a righteous way before the Lord apart from Jesus. Jesus has to be the one that's doing the work. And it's because of God's holiness that we are able to experience the power of Jesus in our life. His redemption demands a righteous priest minister on our behalf, and that righteous priest is Jesus. He is the one that goes before us. He is the one that touches the throne of God. Think about this for a moment. Those men of Beth Shemesh, as they came near the ark of God, what king would allow his throne to be touched? With Jesus, we're able to touch the throne of God. Through Jesus going before us, we are able to touch the throne of God. Not tomorrow, today. That's a result of his holiness. See, when we understand God's holiness and its role in our redemption, all of a sudden his wrath, while it is terrifying and horrible, becomes purposeful and meaningful, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense why a loving God then is also a God of wrath towards sin? And that that wrathfulness towards sin actually is the very thing that allows us to experience the very glory of God. Dale Davis says, Our culture does not help us to smash our graven image of the casual God. Our culture proclaims that God must be the essence of tolerance. He is chummy rather than holy. The man upstairs rather than my father for Jesus' sake. So long as our novelty license plates declare that God is my co-pilot, we can be sure that we have not yet seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. 
As one pastor noted, it's the absence of godly fear that signifies a lack of the knowledge of God. When we understand God's holiness, we will then rejoice in his redemption. And as we rejoice in his redemption, we will see that we can stand in the presence of God today, not simply tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your redemptive plan. We thank you, Lord, that we can can touch your throne today because of Jesus. That your son goes before us and that, God, the guilt that we were guilty of, you sent your son to be the, the offering that deals with that. God, we can see really truly how we have nothing to do with your salvation, that it's you doing that work. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the mercy that's displayed in the face of your wrath. We thank you that you're a God of love and that you are a God of wrath, that you're a God of holiness and you're a God of righteousness. Lord, we praise you for who you are as king over all. And Father, may we experience the joy of residing in your kingdom through the supernatural work of the cross of Jesus where Jesus died and where he rode again and Father, with the confidence that he will one day return for us knowing full well that through him we get to stand in your presence. Thank you, Father. And we ask this in your name. Amen.